Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios, Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome to a very special Memorial Day episode of the Badge Boys. Where two cops talk to the community. I'm retired silent witness sergeant Darren Birch. I am retired Phoenix police officer Jason Schechterly. And this is such a special edition. We have with us 100 years young John Skeen. He is not just a World War II veteran. He is a World War II veteran hero having been shot at the Battle of the Bulge. This is absolutely, this is going to be riveting. It's absolutely an incredible show. Then, of course, we go into our next segment with the cop talk, and then we end with heroic headlines and a great inspirational ending with our very own Jason Sheckley. We'll be right back, everybody. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Well, like I said, we have a most, most special Memorial Day episode. We have World War II veteran John Skeen, 100 years young, having been shot, Purple Heart, war hero at the Battle of the Bulge. And we have to thank for this uh, a, uh, my retired police partner from the late 80s, Barry Momrose, who himself is a Vietnam veteran. So I say to you, John and Barry, and I, I'm going to say five words. I've said these words so many times, but never as important as now. Thank you for your service. You're welcome. Now, John, let's get started with you, my friend. Um, gosh, I, I can't even begin to imagine what you've gone through. The, the greatest generation, truly, that kept us safe from the most horrible threat that we've ever experienced. And We've experienced some bad things with 9-11 and so forth, but the Nazi threat was um, like no other. Um, I would love to hear you tell us about some of those huge, uh, heroic, iconic legends that we hear about, like, for example, General Patton. Uh, Having seen the film, George C. Scott, great portrayal, uh, and there's that big flag behind him as he's up on that pedestal talking. Had you ever had the opportunity to hear from General Patton? Uh, no, sir, not directly. Uh, a lot of uh, information came through on Bolton down to the uh, front line, but uh, I saw him one time. Well, that was when um, the Battle of the Bolton was going on. 
we were in a southern part. A lot of people didn't know, but there was a pincer movement. One was north through Bastogne. The other one was south through Alsace-Lorraine and Strasbourg. And they hoped to, uh, the one south swing north and one north swing south and trap the 7th Army, which I was in. Uh, and uh, the, the, it was a battle of the Ardennes, you, you know, the, the uh, Battle of the Balls. That was part of the Battle of the Ardennes. So you actually saw General Patton, was he like in a, uh, in a vehicle, was he in a tank? Can you kind of describe that moment? I saw him. He was in a Jeep, and uh, the horn was blowing, and we were on the road on our way. We were being, uh, I was in the 275th Infantry of the 70th Division, but during the wartime, everybody was under stress, and as often they would call a regiment or a battalion and attach them to another division for uh, support. And I, I remember the 7th Division, and we were attached at that time to the 3rd Division. And the only time I saw uh, the general was uh, we were on the road moving up about three days before Christmas. And uh, a horn was blowing, and here we all stepped aside, and he came, here he came through, and he, he waved at us on both sides, real close to him. But that, that's the only time I had contact with him. But I did have, a, uh, on two occasions, contact with General George Marshall. Oh, very cool. Tell me about that. Well, we were in the POM uh, exercises. That's preparation for overseas movement down in Missouri, getting ready to go to Europe. And it was in a final phase and was going through these exercises. And so it happened to General Marshall and some other staff members came to observe and see our, uh, our fitness for the preparation for the trip overseas. So uh, lo and behold, I was the uh, uh, non-commissioning officer in charge of the foreign range that day. And the Jeep pulled up with long, three or four others behind and our division commander and stepped aside. He came over and uh, the uh, uh, officer in charge introduced me to him. And he, in our conversation, he asked me how the fellows were doing pretty good. And he said, uh, could I have a demonstration for one? So I, I called one of the fellows over, and one was a uh, pretty good shooter in previous uh, previous. Uh, he was a pretty good shooter. Yes. And so I, he said, I said, well, how do you want him to shoot standing? He said, oh, put him in a prone position. So he got down <laughs> in a prone position, and there was 10. He had 10 rounds in the, in the, uh, beach, uh, the uh, rifle, and he cut loose, and eight of them, he put eight out of 10 in. He circled, and the General Morris said, "Boy, oh boy, the Bosch better be be better watch out. If if that fellows could shoot like that, said we're we're going to take care of the war in a hurry." <laughs> <laughs> and and then that night he had a, a meeting with non commissioned officers at the non commissioned officers club, and so it, uh, most of the fellows were uh, platoon sergeants. And he made a remark, which has stayed with me forever. He said, uh, largely the, the success of the, uh, the war and the campaign that you're in and the, and the uh, uh, fighting that will be done, said, uh, the platoon sergeant will play the most important part. He said, said, you know these men better than any of the officers or anyone up the line. So you've lived with them. You've, cut, you've been with them since they came in. You know about their families. You know their ambitions and hopes and desires. 
so forth and said, uh, you'll be a key figure in the, uh, uh, when you go into combat. And I thought that was a, quite a remark to be made. Very, very wise, because even with police departments, it's the sergeant that knows officers, the, you know, the boots on the ground, as, as you were, um, that knows his men. And if the sergeant buys it, the men will buy it. And uh, did you find that to be true? Oh, yes, yes. Now, tell me about how you first heard that you're going to D-Day. I mean, was that something that was held secret, hush-hush, that you'd find out hours before you're going or even on the, on the way there? Or did you have uh, a few days uh, prep time to know you're going to this in- immense, most heroic, hugest battle of all time? Uh, no, we didn't have any advance information at all that we'd be a part of the uh, uh, Ardennes campaign, which would be in the northern part, which included Bastogne. As I told you before, we were in the southern part. We were fighting, we'd just come, been in uh, Alsace-Lorraine, the mountains of Alsace-Lorraine. And uh, so uh, uh, whenever the, uh, uh, the uh, situation got so bad, and they needed troops. They pulled us out of the 70th and attached to the 200 to the third division. And so we hit the road. And for two or th- two to three days, I don't remember quite. We we walked and rode part of the way and walked part of the way until we got a uh, little town. I don't know Saint Pete or something. A little town you don't, you don't remember the names of. Sure, sure. We didn't get inside. My outfit and unit did not get inside Bastogne. We got within range of the artillery in it. So I wasn't actually in the town of Bastogne. It's funny how you mentioned Bastogne. I was with the 101st uh, Airborne when I was in the military, and the yeah. uh, the tradition and the heritage is really deep because of the battle in Bastogne. Where, uh, can you tell me what the uh, general said when they asked their, for their surrender? Do you remember the words that the uh, general said? Oh, yes. That's it. It was... <laughs> <laughs> common uh, knowledge among all the troops that if he could respond that way, then we had no other choice. We, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it nuts. <laughs> I love that. Nuts, nuts. I love that. Tell us about what it was like at the Battle of the Bulge. How long did it last? What was the weather conditions? If you could paint a picture with your words of what it was like at the Battle of the Bulge. Well, as you know, they had the coldest winter in Europe in 50 years, you know, during the 44, 45. And we in the line, the infantry, we were fighting in the mountains of Alsace Lorraine through December and January and on February. And we were fighting the 6th SS Mountain Division. These were the crack troops of Hitler. They'd fought in Norway and Sweden and Russia. And so they, they corralled most everyone that had... Uh, uh, the uh, had been in the uh, other uh, fighting against Russia and some of the other uh, uh, countries, and so they were determined to break through the mountains of Alsace Lorraine to get back down to uh, around Strasbourg, where they'd be able to maneuver troops and be able to heavy equipment and things of that sort. But uh, uh, we fought there in the mountains, and and uh, one of the uh, most unusual event ever happened. We were on the road moving up this mountain pass uh, to relieve another outfit in a town called Bitch, B-I-T-C-H-E. <laughs> okay. It, 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 was that, <laughs> it, 
it was at the head of the mountain. It was in her national town, and students came from all over Europe and other places to study there. And so we were moving up this mountain pass to relieve this outfit. Well, what happened? The uh, the uh, Germans uh, bypassed Mitch and caught us on the road and ambushed us. And so uh, it was about 9 o'clock at night. We were supposed to be get there about 11 o'clock, but we got shot up all to pieces and lost, lost a lot of men and so forth until we fought our way back and got on a hillside. We were, we were on this mountain hill for three days. Actually, part of the time, our own units didn't know where we were. And several other units along the line, too, ran into practically the same thing. But we lost so many men after three days up there. Whenever we got relieved, we carried uh, men off the hillside. We lost about as many men from uh, frozen feet, frostbite, as we did from the casualties from the Germans themselves. But one of the most unusual experiences, I went back to uh, Germany in 1945 for the 50th anniversary of World War II. The Germans were holding their reunion. The SS, 6th SS Mountain Division was holding their reunion. And so uh, in between, we'd made a They had sent some people over to our reunion. And we, uh, we have our own website and so forth. And we've had communication back and forth. And so they made it uh, a purpose to... Uh, hold a reunion at the time when we were returning to Europe. And so they came down in some buses, picked three uh, three buses, I think, load, and we went back up into this mountain, this big chalet, and it was unloaded, and we were told to line up in a line, and they opened a big double door this uh, chalet, and we, we walked through this t- two big, long tables, went from one end to the other. And so an American soldier sat on one side, and one of the German soldiers, these are the soldiers that we fought against there in the mountains. Surreal. One on the other side, all the way down. But the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, speaker for the uh, event, we learned later, was a colonel of one of the outfits that we fought against there in the mountains. And uh, it was unusual. He, when he took the podium, he just stood there and he looked and he looked and he looked. I didn't think he's ever going to speak. Uh-huh. But uh, finally he said, uh, said, gentlemen, said, who would have ever believed this? Who would have ever thought it could possibly happen? said, 50 years ago, there were, we were in the mountains trying to kill each other. And now here we sit today breaking bread together. I never forget that. Wow, I got chills. I'm serious. I got chills listening to that story. I was, at first, I couldn't get past the uh, funny name of the town, Bitch. I really enjoyed that. Uh, and then, of course, it, was, it went so sad with your officers getting shot. Uh, can you tell me about your experience um, having been shot? Okay. Uh, the Stars and Stripes referred to us. You know, that was a paper published worldwide uh, among the troops. And the Stars and Stripes, we fought so long. We, we took the town, then we lost again, and then we went back. They called us the Sons of Bitch. <laughs> yes, they referred to the, those in Bastogne as the Bastogne Bastards. Bastards, they called them. Yes. <laughs> so they, well, uh, as far as, as the wound was concerned, we had uh, moved up to a line of departure one night to this big hillside, and uh, it was, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, it wasn't a steep hillside, but a sloping one, 
And uh, at top of it was a forest, a lot of trees and so forth. And we were we were to uh, jump off at daylight and get and clear these woods to the town on the other side. It was a sort of a crossroad town, and uh, I think it was junction as three leading roads came in through, and they 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 thought that, or we were told that it was a supply. Uh, a point for the Germans, and we were to take that town after we cleared the woods. Well, uh, we first day we got about halfway through, and the morning and second morning we started to move out. Uh, we were pinned down by machine gun fire, and the company was held up. Well, uh, uh, we could see the bunker. I guess we would probably was in fifty seventy five yards from where the bunker was, but the bunkers, they weren't concrete bunkers there in the woods. They were, uh, they dug down about three to four feet, and they built up three or four feet with logs. Huh. And then on top of that, they'd throw, they'd throw leaves and branches and everything for the roof. Well, Captain said, well, we had a critique there with the platoon leaders, and Captain uh, uh, questioned the fact that what we were going to do. We arrived at the situation that uh, uh, they had cleared an area for the field of fire, and the, and the trees and things had cut down was piled up along the left side between where we were and where the bunker was. And the uh, captain said, "Well, I was I, I had a good relationship with the captain. Uh, I found out uh, after we lost our first captain, and he replaced him. Uh, he night he came up, he introduced himself and asked." Or each one of us about our background and so forth, and I found out that the, I had been in Alaska on a Nile with his brother. He <laughs> said, "I'm Joe Donahue. I'm Joe Donahue. I'm from New York." And I said, "You know, uh, Captain, I said I I uh, I knew a Donahue uh, in uh, uh, Alaska. I said he was with the 198th." Coast artillery, and I remember it so plain because we used to call him a dollar ninety eight outfit. <laughs> but he said, "Well, that was my brother." So every time something came up or something, Captain called for Skeen, Skeen, lead a patrol, do this, do that. <laughs> Small <laughs> it world. Out, it turned out to be a disadvantage. Yes, anyway, it was. <laughs> anyway, we came to the conclusion that we could work our way around the left side of all that. Uh, bushes and trees that was piled up, and I he said, "What do we need?" I said, "Give I need a bazooka man and probably a grenade uh, rifle and another person." I said, "I think that four of us be be plenty." And so we had walkie talkies, and I said, oh, "We keep in contact." So it took about fifteen or twenty minutes for us to work our way. Uh, along the side, this uh, piled up brush and so forth, and we got up to not exactly opposite, but at an at an angle. And so I told the bazooka man, I said, "Okay, uh, our uh, we could see the barrel of the machine gun out of the bunker slot." Wow. And uh, so he he fired his first round, and it lit uh, short and bounced over top. <laughs> we had three rounds, is all we had. And the bazooka shells. So the other fellow with him was carrying it. And so he took the second one and he hit that thing dead center. You should have seen it. It looked like an explosion. The log flew everywhere and the brush in the air. And it was just like a smoke screen almost. And so 
when that, that happened, uh, I said, okay, let's move. And so we charged towards the bunker. And uh, I got hit, but I didn't know at the time it was hit. It was so cold and everything until I, I felt uh, later, just a few uh, minutes later, I felt a warm blood in my glove. We were wearing gloves. It was very cold. And in uh, all excitement and everything, it, it was a, actually uh, uh, lucky. It didn't hit a bone. went through uh, my arm between my wrist and elbow. But anyway, uh, we charged the bunker, and out the back side ran three soldiers. And so we cut down, the other fellow and I cut down, both of them started firing at the same time. We was up fairly close. And so one fell, well, face down, when they got up to, to where the, where the uh, wounded, the fellow had been shot, and the other German was sitting there, and, and he, was, he got a hit in the knee, and he was crying, screaming around, hollering. And the other one faced down, but the third one got back, got, got free and got into the woods. I took my, uh, the one laying face down, I took my rifle, got underneath and flipped it over. And here it was, a woman. She had on a long German coat. Oh, my God. Later, when we found out after we cleared the woods and took the town, the burgomaster and everything said it wasn't uncommon. Said these women would go out during the night, take food and stay with the troops in the bunkers, and then come back in before daylight. And so uh, that was something that's been indelible me in my mind all my life. I guess. Oh, man. <laughs> Bless your heart. Wow. Wow. I did not expect that to go in that direction. That's That's... Yeah. What happened with your injury? Um, did you when, when you well, did, when you did realize? Did you go to the medics? Did you get off off, off the battlefield? Well, uh, yeah, uh, we waited uh, uh, after we, we took the town. Town, uh, the aid man wrapped the bandage around me, put his sulfur on the wound, and wrapped the bandage around and said, and we went on and took the town, and then uh, the uh, uh, aid man. Uh, got on the phone and everything, and uh, so uh, a jeep came up. There's two others that uh, had uh, uh, been hit, not seriously any any way. There's three of us that us on the jeep and took us back to the battalion aid station. And I didn't think it, was, uh, it, it didn't look too bad to me or anything. But they said, "Well, we're going to have to send you back to the division hospital." Says a gunshot wound, of course, and the shrapnel said. The shrapnel, the heat, and everything sort of catarizes, but the gunshot wound—you know—I would get an infection. So we got to take that, take you back, and, and let them clear it all up. So I went back, and incidentally, when I we got in about midnight, I woke up the next morning, and here was—I found out it was my old. Hundred uh, First Airborne. <laughs> they were all around me. Oh. <laughs> But uh, one boy was in a bunker in a, in a the bed beside me. There's three of us in this room, and he had had a lost he lost a leg just below his knee from a, a, a mine, and they had a thing at at the end of the bed like a goalpost, and I can remember the knee they had uh, some way uh, pasted a, a cover over the end, and they put had a knot in it and they had a rope that went out and had a pulley over the crossbar at the end of the bed and it had a weight on it. And that weight, you know, pulled and stretched the uh, uh, skin over, I guess, over the knee to grasp, you know. Wow. And uh, 
he was just a young guy. I, tell you, I didn't even think he was 18. But anyway, the funny part about it, he, he'd slip down in his bed and let that weight go down on the floor, and the nurse would come in, and she'd just get all over him. <laughs> <laughs> but a ghastly scene. I seen a whole ward after I got up and started moving around. Incidentally, I was there not quite three weeks, a little or two weeks, uh, because normally they said you'd stay a month, but everybody was, uh, you know, under strength and they needed manpower and it's going back, especially infantrymen. They went back and picked up people from other outfits and had no experience at all as far as. Uh, now, I heard uh, Barry was telling me that you were offered a, a, a field grade promotion. Uh, after the shooting, did I understand that correctly? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I lost my uh, uh, officer, uh, and uh, I'd been leading the platoon I think for probably a month or more. And uh, so, um, Captain mentioned the fact that uh, uh, you, you should be commissioned. I said, uh, forget about it. I'm not worried about it. But anyway, to my surprise, one morning, Jeep pulled up and and they had two other uh, soldiers. And said, Captain said, John said, you're going back and get your commission. So you're going back to uh, uh, Nancy, France, in a, in a, in a, not far from Paris. So I said, okay. So I got in. So we went up that evening. We had a hotel across the room across the road from where the uh, place was that uh, we'd be interviewed so that morning we went over and uh, I was one of the first ones called in uh, uh, Corporal Paul told me come on said follow me and we went down a couple three rooms and went in and there was this colonel on the desk and he had a he had a folder there and had some sort of a resume on me and he said I Something about the fact that I don't, I don't need to question you in your book and be a, uh, an officer. And you've been acting for one for a long time. I said, yes, sir, that's right. He said, well, he mentioned some other thing. And he said, well, you'll be, I, I was from Company I, 275th Infantry. Well, this colonel said, well, you'll be going to Company C, 274th. I said, say that again. Yeah, I said, we're assigning you to company C, 274th. I said, forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to. I'm not leaving my men. I said, I'm, I've been with these fellows ever since they came in. I hardly knew their left foot from their right foot, and I know all about them and everything, and they depend on it so much. I said, forget about it. He said, oh, you may not be offered again. I said, well, that don't make any difference. I said, it's me. <laughs> So I, I, he said, boy, you were the first one. This is unusual. Well, yeah, those, uh, you get to know, well, you have to, you know, the brother system. You, yeah. you say they're closer than a brother. Yeah. After you spend days and nights and mornings and evenings and everything with these men for so long, it just depend upon you as and uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be recognized as someone who was interested in and, and do anything for them. So. I love that story. I absolutely love that story. We're almost done. I have one last question for you. Uh, I understand that when um, uh, the war was over, everyone kind of went on their own way. 
but they were asking people to sign up for reserves. Can you tell me that story real quickly? Okay. All right. We came in and uh, went to this place to get our discharge papers and to get our transportation uh, route. Uh, and so uh, this guy was sitting there. He was a he was a sergeant and said, uh, uh, "We're signing up men for the reserve." Said. Uh, uh, you're from West Virginia, aren't you? I said, yeah. And he said, well, uh, you want to sign? You want to sign? Here, he had some papers there. I said, sign. I said, what for? He said, for the reserve. You'll be putting in the reserve. And I said, nothing doing. I said, I'm not putting my name on anything that the Army has to do with the Army. Yeah, get of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, try to pretty- try to keep you in. <laughs> you, I, I I cannot thank you enough, John. That was uh, I just r- literally the best half an hour I've ever spent. Uh, I can't oh, thank you enough, sir. And I, when I say thank you for your service, uh, I know uh, um, uh, well, a very grateful nation hope. thanks you, sir. Yeah. All right, you're welcome. And and Barry Momrose, who I didn't even get a chance to say hi to, uh, Barry, thank you for making this happen, my friend. Well, that wraps it up for this very special Memorial Day interview with World War II Battle of the Bolts veteran John Skeen. We'll be right back. You packed your bags and shut the door. You crossed the sea to fight a war. You didn't know just what would happen to you. Stepped in the dirt, boots on the ground, and gunfire was the only sound. And to yourself, you whispered hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. I'll never forget, never forget that moment. As long as, I as live. long as I live. My first call ever as a member of the National Guard. When we got to the armory, they briefed us on the wildfires. They were getting dangerously close to homes. Helicopters were going out to drop water on the fires. Guys in the unit were preparing for firefighting with local fire crews. At that moment, I got my first taste of just how important the Guard is to my community. See how the Guard can be an important part of your life at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. That was a very, uh, oh gosh, the most solemn yet riveting Memorial Day interview regarding our World War II hero. That was absolutely riveting. Yeah, you know, I, and I come from, I'm still a big believer in the term our greatest generation thank you my grandfather is still my ultimate hero with the time that he spent world war ii vietnam and korea i mean three separate conflicts wars 
26 years uh, in the Air Force and his stories, and I never saw him have a bad day. It truly was the greatest generation. So the, the, that was just one of the biggest things ever, his, his life, his journey, and what he can share. And we're coming to a time, Darren, where people aren't going to be able to share those stories anymore, and that's, uh, that hits me right in the heart. A hundred years young, and we're so thankful to have him on the show, no <laughs> doubt about it. And, and Jason and I both have military background. Yes. Jason, Air Force, myself, Army. And so Memorial Day, we always think in terms, as well we should, those fallen soldiers. Yes. But there's also, unfortunately, the war at home with criminals. And we have fallen officers. And Jason and I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about memorializing those officers. Well, look, I, yeah, I don't care what uniform you're wearing from the the people who pick up my garbage every week and help keep our streets clean to the parks and rec guys all the way up to, of course, police officers and first responders that serve our community. Memorial Day is, uh, I know we, uh, we heighten the service of our military as, as, well as should. we should, because uh, I get to spend Memorial Day, you know, watching my kid play baseball. So, I don't take my freedoms for granted, but if you're wearing a uniform, if you're serving something bigger than yourself, that's what Memorial Day is about, too. And those who honor Memorial Day, you're honoring it because the freedoms that were given to you, because they, they weren't given free. Freedom is not free. Freedom is not free. But also our safety. Also our safety from city to county to state to our entire country. With that in mind, we have two very special guests that are joining us today. Uh, Alan Painter is the brother of a murdered police chief, uh, Ralph Painter, whose uh, end of watch was on January 5th, 2011. And Alan has, is going to join us in a moment, as well as uh, Under Sheriff Darren Ullman, uh, who um, is going to be able to weigh in on his own loss, as well as uh, be able to paint a picture of how officers felt going to that that scene of that murdered police chief. So without further ado, uh, Alan and Darren, thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Well, thank, thank you for you. having us. Alan, I want to start with you. Um, before we even talk about the sad and the tragic and the, and the senseless, uh, your brother's death, I'd like to talk a little bit about who he was growing up, maybe some ang- anecdotal stories that you have that, kind of show the love of this of your brother as well as a, as a cop um, who worked up the ranks to be a police chief sure well let's just start where he was when he was young please um, I've, I've said in a couple of newspaper articles that i really believe being a police officer uh, deputy a sheriff really is a calling that's put on your life and i think that starts at a very young age i think a lot of police officers um firemen, doctors, they know what they want to be. They feel that calling very young in their life. Ralph felt that call. I think he felt that early on, and and he pursued it. He didn't get in right away. He, he was a reserve for a long time. It took him a lot to get in. Uh, we had a business together for about 10 years, and I just knew at some point he would get in uh, with him being a reserve, and that really he was just really tenacious about it. He wasn't going to give up on it, and uh, – Finally, I believe when he was about 27, 28, he got in. He actually got in as a full-time officer, um, just doing street, you know, uh, highway patrol at first, patrolling the streets there in Rainier. And uh, I think as every officer, probably their ambition is always to go on and, you know, to 
go up the ranks, and he did that. So some funny stuff when we were kids. You know, as a lot of us, as we play cops and robbers, that's what we called them back then, or cowboys and Indians. Probably not very politically correct today, but that's what we called. <laughs> we did. That's we, we did. Called we did. We did. So when we played cops and robbers, Ralph always got to be the good guy and always had to be the bad guy. <laughs> Never knew quite how that worked out. Same thing with cowboys and Indians. I was always the the uh, Indian, and Ralph got to be the cowboy. Well, that was fine until we all found out. We found out as kids at some point that we actually had Native American in our background, and that kind of made me more proud to be the Indian. <laughs> so I thought, you could go ahead and be the cowboy. I know what actually we are now, so that um, was kind of a fun spin on that. Some fun anecdotes. Well, I know there's some fun stories, and maybe Darren knows some more from uh, from being in College County. I mean, I'm sure some have come across the river to him, uh, and officers have a way of, you know, ribbing each other about stuff. Some of the fun ones I know about, and I'm sure there's many more, usually, un- unfortunately, at a officer's service is when you hear some of the funny stuff that comes out. And their department knows about it, but it just never really quite makes the public. Uh, it doesn't get in the newspapers and on the media and stuff, and probably just as well. I know there was a one time there was a lady passing through Rainier, and she was probably, according to Ralph, she was going about 75, and I believe Rainier is a 30-mile zone going through town. And he pulled her over. And he just tried to inform her how fast she was going. Of course, she did not believe her car could do that kind of speed. And Ralph, Ralph informed her that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give you a ticket. And she goes, no, you don't. Well, then I, I believe she asked, for, she asked for his badge number, which, I mean, it's right there on your badge. And she asked for his commanding officer. And he goes, ma'am, I, I am the chief. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking to him. Yeah, I don't think you can go any higher than that. Uh, Another incident I was just thinking about last night after uh, Darren, you and I talked was there, Ralph, a lot of, I don't know why, because he got the calls at night a lot of times. And I, I think it was even before he was chief, probably because he lived right in town. Uh, he'd get the calls at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, he got a call one night that a huge rock had rolled off the hill between um, St. Helens and Rainier, and they asked if he would go out and investigate it. And he did. And when he got there, there was a guy standing at the top of the road but his car was down in a ravine, and uh, Ralph says, hey, what happened? He goes, well, I, that rock, the rock just rolled down in front of me. He goes, and I, I, it hit the front of my truck and pushed me down the ravine. He goes, well, where's the rock? He goes, well, it's down there in the ravine somewhere. So Ralph walks back to his car, and he gets a form. He goes, well, I'm going to have to have you fill out this form. And he goes, form for what? He goes, my, my truck's down there. And the guy, Ralph says, well, you know, Columbia County, which we do, Columbia County is known for, we have a lot of rocks. and." And we're, we're kind of the, the uh, gravel capital of, of the state of Oregon. He goes, well, they value their rocks here in Columbia County. He goes, and I got to see what kind of damage you did to the rock. The, the county's probably going to give you a back charge for, for that rock, for you damaging that rock. <laughs> the, the guy just couldn't hardly believe it. He's like, are you kidding me? Ralph, Ralph says, no, no. He goes, here, I got to have you fill out this form. Well, I mean, it's all said and done. He goes, no. He goes, I, I really am. He goes, I'll call for a tow. Let's get your, let's get your car out of, the, out of the ravine. He had a heck of a sense of humor. Well, Alan? He did. Well, we grew up that way. Our grandpa was that way, and uh, we just kind of all grew up that way. That's just the way it was. Yeah. That, thank, God for, thank God for our grandparents. That's what I was just saying to Darren. I, uh, my grandfather never had a bad day in his life, and I, to this day I laugh and smile 90% because of uh, being around him. Uh, but speaking of smiles, uh, let's 
transition and wipe those off of our faces. And could you share with us what, um, for our listening audience, what we call end of watch, the, the day that your brother lost his life in the line of duty? Okay. Well, you know, you know that those days, that that possibility is always there. Yes. I mean, none of us ever want to think that that's ever going to happen to you or anybody in your family. Um, I mean, I agree they'll go out and they wear their uniforms proud, and you just never think Rainier's a small town. I mean, it's not a very big town. Uh, Nothing like that usually happens in a small town. But I remember the day very well. I was getting ready for work, and I get a call from his daughter, one of his daughters. He had seven kids, um, that her dad had been shot. And that's all I got. Because I got to go and call. He's been shot. And I'm going to Rainier. And that was it. Well, I thought my first thought was, well, of course, I called him to work and told him I'm not coming in. But it was all over the news at that point. And I figured I had to get to my mom's house. I didn't want her to hear about it on the news. And uh, unfortunately, that is how she found out about it. Oh, bless um, her heart. She stayed busy. She kept busy. That's how my mom deals with things. She stayed busy. There were, I had, we have tons of cousins. Cousins were there. Aunts and uncles were there. We knew what was coming, and um, they uh, kept her busy, but the minute she sat down, uh, of course, and you know the media at first never gets it right, um, they made the announcement that, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think they said who it was, but they said that the officer that had been shot, you know, had died. Wow. That was not good for, for her to hear it that way. Five no. minutes later, the, cha- the chaplain from St. Helens, which is a, 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 a town not very far away from Rainier, came over and I mean, he just missed it by like three or four minutes, you know, and it's unfortunate, but that is how she found out. We, I already knew because I had been talking to people that were in Rainier, but I just couldn't come out and tell her that until I wanted to make sure she was in a place where she could hear that. But unfortunately she heard it through the news. So. And what actually happened? He was responding to a call. There's a car stereo place in Rainier where they install car stereos in, in a garage in a place of business and there was a young man sitting in a car and he had been there a couple of days before they saw him hanging around and uh, the tires were a couple of doors down and they saw him hanging around, but he just decided to take it upon himself to sit in this show car. They had a show car in the, in the garage of the uh, stereo store. And he just decided he was going to sit in there and uh, play the stereo. And I think the thought was from the management uh, perspective there at the stereo store that uh, he was trying to steal the car. Um, that is possible that he, that was his intent. So they called Ralph. Ralph was in his office. Um, I actually had talked to a couple of people that were in conversation with Ralph just before that happened, as he got the call, in fact. So I know a little bit about what his mindset was when he went into the garage. Um, but he went in there and he asked the young man to get out of the car. Well, he wouldn't. So he, I know he sprayed him with pepper spray and uh, he, that had no effect. Well, there was another person there in the garage, you know, and we've never seen the police report. I, th- I told Darren that yesterday. We, have, to this day, have not seen the police report. We can only speculate on some of that, and what we've heard bits and pieces is that there was a third person in the garage at one point, and I, all I can imagine is Ralph turned for a second to push the person back so he didn't get involved, and at that point, uh, the young man came out of the car and punched Ralph, knocked him out, um, Pulled his, pulled his gun out of his holster. Actually, he went back and sat in the car for a little bit. When he saw Ralph laying on the ground, he recognized that he was an officer, and he thought, oh, shoot. 
uh, I better just take care of this. I mean, I don't know what his exact words were, but it was pretty much that. And he just went and grabbed the gun out of his holster and shot him execution style. Oh, tragic. I, I'd like to bring in Darren at this point. Uh, now we have this uh, crime scene, this homicide. Um, and you weren't there, but your officers, your troops weren't, were one of the first at this scene, were they not, Darren? Yeah, they were. We, we received the call that uh, there had been a police shooting in Rainier. And Rainier is obviously in the, our neighboring state of Oregon. And um, immediately, everybody that was available responded, um, knowing that Rainier is a very small agency and that the chief is usually, you know, he can be there on his own at times. But every, every person from the Longview Police Department, the Cowles County Sheriff's Office, Kelso Police Department immediately rushed across the bridge into Oregon and were on scene as quickly as they could. Um, when they got there, the suspect was still armed with the gun, and there was actually uh, a, a shooting between the officers and the, the suspect at that time. I also want to mention that, you know, Klatsk and I police were there, Columbia County Sheriff, the troopers were there. I mean, it, everybody flooded the scene because it, it didn't matter what jurisdiction you were in at that point. You know, this is one of our brothers that went down, and um, we sent everything that we had at that point. And it was a, a really a surreal moment for them. Um, once they had the, the gentleman in custody, um, a couple of my guys were, were doing CPR on Ralph and uh, were there with him you know, through that whole process. And it was, it, it was, it was tough. And it took a lot of, uh, a lot of time to, to really get over that and to understand and to really wrap your brain about what, what just happened. And, um, it's one of those things we don't think is going to happen in our community. And then even if it happens in a neighboring community, um, it still affects us because we're all very small. Well, I won't say very small, but we're so small agencies all in this area. And we're kind of in a remote part of Oregon and Washington and and there's the the next jurisdictions are, are actually quite a ways away from all of us so we're we're pretty close we're pretty tight and uh, it has a pretty pretty resonating impact on us when when something like this happens yes yeah, it's, it's truly a brotherhood i hate using the word brotherhood because it's sisterhood it's family is it not oh absolutely now with with this, with this having happened um you have the suspect in custody, and Alan, if you could kind of weigh in on the long journey to justice, because this was now almost nine years ago, eight, eight and a half years ago. Can you tell us about that journey to justice? Oh, gosh. It's been a long road, um, long, long road. Uh, the first, we couldn't even get to an arraignment because he was so disruptive in court at times, so they kept postponing the arraignment. I believe the rain that finally happened at the jail because they didn't want to transport him to the county courthouse, which we did that, went through that. Um, he had, at first he had a defense team, the first defense team he had for about a year and a half. And then about at that point he changed to a different defense team. And the first year and a half, it seemed like the judge, we were heading towards a trial with between the DA and, and the judge, uh, that appeared to be where we were heading. And we were hoping to do that like within a two or three year period, knowing that the killing of an officer is, is involved um, with just a lot of lawyers and stuff. Uh, mind you, at this point, we did not have our own lawyer because uh, we didn't think we needed one. Um, but after a couple of years, things seemed to change to where 
the judge, when the new defense team came on, the judge just changed his tune, and he catered to everything that the defense team wanted with delays and everything they asked, he pretty much gave them. And then we started thinking, well, maybe we're not going to trial anytime soon, which was the case. I mean, we went to competency hearings and we would go to hearing after hearing. And you always hinge on that little bit of hope. You think, well, maybe this time things will kind of head our direction. And towards the end of the hearing, nope, the defense team would win again. And just time after time, about halfway, about four years into it, we actually did go get our own lawyer. Um, she did it all pro bono. And bless her heart, I mean, she was good for us. Um, she did a good job. I don't think in her mind she thinks she did enough. But there wasn't a lot she could have done. Um, and in that time frame, too, our DA had had 37 years in with, with the county, and he decided to retire, so we switched DAs. Uh, new DA came in. He was he was gung-ho. He was on fire. He did a good job. Uh, to this day, I still think he did a good job. Um, he just he had his hands full. And uh, I will say that the defense team that um, this young man had was a great defense team as far as I, I don't like to give him too much credit because it no. pops up his head. <laughs> no. Yeah. He's what pretty was, arrogant. He's what pretty was arrogant. the ultimate sentencing that this, uh, I don't want to say young man, this uh, piece of shit got? Now he's not a young man anymore. Well, Good. He's, I guess he's still, according to me, I mean, comparing to me. Uh, um, the sentence was we never we never thought with this judge we were ever going to get a fair trial. I mean, it's it's hard to say. You think of the, usually you think of the criminal saying they're never going to get a fair trial. Well, in our case, it was our family. I don't, I don't think we were going to get a fair trial out of this with this judge. So he actually hired a retired judge from Portland who had tried murder cases before. She worked up a plea. We did a plea uh, only because it cuts out the appeal process. It does. It does. They can't appeal one and, they accept a plea. Yeah. And chances are he will serve the full term of of the years that he was given in the plea. He got nearly 50 years. He will be credited eight years plus for the time served. So he'll get a little over 41 years before he's even eligible for parole. And according to the DA, the parole process at that point is about a two-year process. So ultimately he'll, he'll be in prison for about 43 years. That's and I the, believe he's, that's he's the, 29 now. That's the so. perfect spot to uh, take a break with this like I said, piece of shit, getting 40 years, and I hope he serves every second of it, but we know that probably won't happen. When we come back from a break, we're going to, again, talk with Alan about uh, that date in April where the sentencing was heard and, unfortunately, of another police officer that was killed. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. 
Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody. That was a powerful segment, and this next segment uh, is really, I don't even know how to put it into words. It's going to be shocking how this gets tied in. And uh, our guests, again, are uh, Alan Painter and... Uh, the undersheriff of Callitz County, Darren Ullman. Uh, welcome back, guys. And, Alan, we close that first segment talking about the trial and the sentencing. And on that day, you learned something about another officer. You heard something else that day. Can you share that with our audience, please? I can. We did our plea court date in March, March 26th. On April 14th, there was another shooting across the river in um, Cowlitz County, and I heard about it, but I didn't know much about it. I get a call Sunday morning from a friend of mine um, was off the record because uh, he couldn't divulge too much um, because his wife is OSP, Oregon State Police. And he just said, Alan, there's a connection between what just happened across the river and your brother. And I said, well, what would that connection be? He goes, well, you guys just went, went, you had your court case, right? And I said, yes. He goes, the guy that shot this deputy in Cowlitz County is the half-brother and cousin at the same time of the uh, guy that shot your brother. I, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it at first. And uh, he says, Alan, it's true. It's, it's, it's a reliable source. And, uh, of course, I couldn't say anything because that was privileged information. And uh, there's, you know, it's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And of course, I, from that point on, I followed the case fairly close, as close as I could. And that, uh, that deputy that was shot and killed was Justin DeRozier. And um, Darren, your connection here is you are the, uh, ultimately a supervisor of Darren. But more importantly, um, excuse me, of, of, of Justin but more importantly, you knew him, you recruited him. Uh, you're almost like a father figure. Am, am I overstating that, sir? Uh, no, not at all. I've known Justin since he was in kindergarten. Oh. He grew up with my son. Him and my son went to college together. Um, his family and my family, I went to high school with his mother. We, we're, we've known each other their whole lives. Um, my son and him were both at Washington State University together, and me and his father would go together for dad's weekends and, and events like that over in Pullman. Um, so every year we were we were celebrating as a good coog would, and um, yeah, so I mean, I helped coach him in, in baseball when he was a kid, and he's just always been part of the family, really. And when he started getting into law enforcement and wanting to get into law enforcement, you know, he really started picking my brain and me and then you know others obviously but he uh, decided this is what he wanted to do and and it was it was his calling i mean he was he was good at it he was a people person 
Um, you know, some people just have that that gift, and really, you can train someone to be a police officer, but it's really got to come from inside the person. And there's so much more to it than just going to the academy or getting a degree in criminal justice or anything like that. There has to be something inside that you can talk to people. You're, you have to be a good communicator. And you have to relate. And that was Justin. He was he was a great young cop, and it just made this even so much worse. During a uh, media briefing, you spoke about Justin's presence. Can you talk a little bit about that, how his bigger-than-life presence? Oh, absolutely. He, Justin was a big guy, and he, he just had that. When he would come into a room, everybody knew Justin was in the room. He was, he was gregarious. He was loud. He was constantly smiling. Um, the best way I've described it is just that bull in a china shop type thing. He was just a larger than life personality that would, you know, come through a room and just clear the room. And, but it was, it was in a way that wasn't intrusive. It was people, you know, wrapped around that. And he would really take command of a room when he was there. He was just, he was smart and he had that ability to, you know, he'll, he'll tell you, he knows everything. But, <laughs> that confidence. Uh, and the problem with that was, is half the time he was right. <laughs> if not more than half the time. So it was hard to argue with him when, you know, you're always right. So, yeah, he was just that larger than life personality. I mean, he just glowed everywhere he went. And when he would walk into a room, he would just command the room. And so... It was really sad because I, I was hoping to start grooming him towards uh, an administrative position, um, and that wasn't going to be right away. But it was something that I could see just in his personality and his presence that he was going to be a commander one day. How he, long was he, he on the department at that time? He was only with us for about three years. Wow! Wow! And he, but he had that again. He had that the smarts. He was getting ready had to transition future. to our. Yeah, he had, he was going to transition into our drug task force. And when I put out a, a posting for you know people to, to apply, he gave me about a two-inch thick binder <laughs> of all the things that he has done. I mean, every certification, every training he had been to. I mean, so much uh, stuff in this binder. And he was the only applicant. Uh, bless <laughs> his heart. He didn't have to do all that. <sighs> but that's the way he was. He yeah. was thorough. He was... You know, he knew what he needed to do to to excel and to be in that position. And he, I was constantly denying training requests for him because he couldn't get <laughs> enough training. You get him every minute. Exactly. And so I would get all these training requests, and I had to tell him, "It's like you need to slow down a little bit here. We we can't afford to be the the Justin Derosier training division. It's just that's the way he was. Though he wanted to learn more. He there was so much more he wanted." To, to see and do and, and experience, and uh, he, he couldn't be everywhere, but he sure did try. So, Under Sheriff, take us, how did you get from the sentencing in the courtroom to the half-brother shooting this young deputy um, right across the river? What uh, Fill in that story for us. Okay, this is this is where it really became an out of body experience. Basically, um, 
we had just heard about the sentencing across the river, and we were, you know, thankful that that was finally to an end. Because every time there was a court hearing, every time that happened, it basically just rips the Band-Aid off the wound again. And the, the family is victimized over and over again, and our guys are victimized over and over again. And that's one of those things that people forget about, is that every time that happens, every time it's in the media, every time this thing just gets replayed, it's, you're, you're re-victimizing everybody again. And it's a horrible thing to have to go through. So we were elated that they finally had come to something and, and got him put away. He was from the town of Kalama. On that night... About 10.30 in the evening, I got a phone call, and I was told that, that Justin had just been shot, and he was being life-flighted down to uh, southwest in Vancouver, Washington. So while we were en route, I got the word that, that he didn't make it. So I got to the hospital with the family, and we were all in, in with him, and that's when someone came into the room and, and whispered in my ear of who the suspect was. And it was immediately just that cold chill down the spine. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. And Justin was actually responding to a call of a, uh, a broke-down vehicle in the roadway. That's all it was. Totally, totally the call that everybody has been on a million times. We've all, you know, it was 1030 at night. Um, it was in a very remote location, and it was dark. It was a, a small, windy road on the side of a hill. And on the way there, he pulled over a car. Um, I'm not sure why he pulled the car over, but he pulled over the car. And there were several people in that vehicle. As it turns out, those folks lived in the house next to where this motorhome was blocking the roadway. I think he issued a citation and sent them on their way. And then a few minutes later, he rolled up to the motorhome just to check it out, tell the person, you know, hey, get this thing out of the roadway. It was just kind of half off the road, half on the road type thing. And he was going to just, you know, get this thing out of here. That's all it was. And next thing we knew, shots are fired. He's on the air saying, I've been hit. I've been hit in the chest. And um, Kalama officers then responded. Again, this is where this guy's from. The Kalama officers then responded up. They were able to get him into a vehicle. One of the officers stayed on that scene by himself um, while the other officer raced Justin down the hill to get him to the ambulance as quickly as possible. Um, and if I could use some very vulgar language. Please do. Please do. One of the last <laughs> things that Justin said was, get that motherfucker. Jesus, and, really? Good for Justin. Yeah. And he was. he gave us a description. He gave us oh, you know, awesome. as much as he could, and um, before he just started to drift, and it was it was you know good for him. I mean, he yes. stood there and he fought, and uh, you know it, he was put in a the worst position possible. I mean, because we don't go to those types of calls thinking we're going to be ambushed. Yeah, no. But truly, he you know how can you know when that's going to happen? You don't. And, and he stayed a cop. Just, I hate saying it like that, but he stayed cop. He was he to the very end. He wanted to get he helped his brothers give them a description because yeah. they're going to be a threat. Was he wearing a vest shot by a high-powered rifle? What? How? How did the chest wound happen to him? It was he was wearing a vest. He had a, a, a jumpsuit on with a vest underneath the jumpsuit. The round hit him like in the top of the shoulder and shot down under <sighs> the vest. Just bad luck. And, uh, yeah. 
yeah, I think it, it uh. might have clipped his aorta. And so he, yeah, he, it, uh. it was a brutal shot. So we don't know all the details from the scene yet because the report still hasn't been released. Um, this was just a month and a week ago. Uh, but, but he, he, he put up a fight and, uh, he want, he made sure that we knew who we were looking for and, and the manhunt pursued after that. So after I was able to, we were at the hospital and once, you know, everything started to slow down there and we got him over to the medical examiner's office. Um, I then went to the command post and we started the search. And so for the next 24 hours, we were searching for this guy because he fled off into the woods and it turned into a manhunt for the next 24 hours. We had agencies from the entire state helping us. It was amazing. The, the support from our fellow officers, I cannot say enough about it. It was, and, and if I could give anybody advice, if you run an agency or even just working for an agency, if this happens to your neighboring agency, step in and take it over for them. Because mm-hmm. at this point, we were so shocked with what had happened. And it, it really became... Too close to home. Almost dizzying. Yeah. Because, it, well, especially for me, as, yeah. as the undersheriff, it was, I, I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't, I, I was just having so much trouble wrapping my brain around it. So just logic was out the window at that point. But to have someone from from our one of our neighboring agencies in Clark County come up and you know, really Longview Police and the Kelso Police Department, you know, when the guy puts his arm on your shoulder and says, mm-hmm. you know, we got this, oh, don't worry about heart. it, that's Good awesome. for him. Yeah, that you know, that's when you melt down. Yeah, and yep. it's all we could do at that point. I mean, we stayed at the command post, but they took care of everything and they they ran it. So we chased this guy for like I said, about twenty four hours or so. I finally went back home, tried to get some sleep for about an hour. Didn't work. Uh, my phone rang. We think we got him. Back in the car, raced back down to the scene, and um, two officers from the Kelso Police Department encountered him. He came out on the roadway. He started firing shots at them, and they uh, took care of the situation at that point. So he didn't survive. Um, those two officers are absolutely heroes. And they, you know, because they were feeling the same emotion. Sure. They were from around here. Brother. They were having to deal with, you know, they responded to uh, Ralph's situation. So it was, it was just so much at that moment. So unbelievable that we would have a brother of the other suspect here um, and shooting at us. And, you know, we didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Why is he yeah. doing this? Yeah. That was so, un- and we'll never know. We'll never know that answer. That monster will take it to his grave. Yeah. And so we we won't. That is going to be the hardest part of all of this is why. What was the point? And, you know, unfortunately, this young man with a six-month-old baby who is going to grow up now and never know her father, um, it's just the tragedy just goes on and on. And plus, it reopened everything for the Painter family. Sure. And it. Oh my gosh! That connection, why is surreal. Hide, yes. So it's just been uh, yeah, words can't explain it. Really, it's, I've it's never heard like, a story quite like this. It, it, I mean, it, yeah, uh, it's too many it, surreal it, it, quasi- yeah, you, it, you, correlations. You couldn't even yeah. make this up into a movie. Uh, but uh, for what Justin did, uh, it shows the the fight that's inside of all of us, even at the worst moments. I'm sure he was. 
uh, I've unfortunately seen the death of a lot of officers and heard a lot of dying words and and things like that. Nothing compares to, you know, I'm sure he was thinking about his wife, his baby, and knew, you know, when a fatal wound, guys know when that's coming. And uh, for him to do his job still and that statement that he made, I'll tell you what, I'd like to get a shirt with his name on it that yeah. says that quote because that would be great to Good walk for around. You, Jason. And I don't yeah. care how many people look at me going, Jason, no. that's not very politically correct. Well, I don't you, really Jason. care. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's incredible. That is memorial. At his memorial service when I spoke, I wanted to say that so bad. <laughs> I wanted to say, I wanted to say. We got, yeah. We, we, we got, got that him. motherfucker. We got that motherfucker. That would have been great. Oh, my God, that would have been great. You know what, Under Sheriff, though, I, I appreciate you explaining that with the vulnerability. Cops have a job to do, but we are not robots. And you're exactly right. Other, and I've seen it happen here in the, the big city with the surrounding agencies. For another agency to step in. For somebody in charge with not quite the emotional connection to put put their arm around you and say, "Hey, we got this," it it means the world. It, it is everything it right then. And so, thank you for sharing that. You need it. Uh, I mean, it, it has to happen because it's you'll you'll eat yourself up alive trying to do everything at once because you want to do you know what's right and you need to get it done now. Right. And right. It, it's hard when you're still processing in the back of your head what what just happened. And Darren, in the closing uh, three minutes, can you talk a little bit about how you dealt with this as both the leader of this organization, second in charge, how you talk with your your men and women about this tragic loss? And I don't know how many officers you lose uh, in your career, but um, it it, it never gets easier. Uh, it's, It's horrific. And what you had to deal with as a father, as a friend of the family, Justin said, that little girl. Can you talk, in, I hate to say in three minutes, but can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, man, I, I wish I could explain it. Um, I was a family liaison through the whole planning of the, the uh, event, the memorial event. And when we first sat down with the family and I was sitting with his wife and she put her hand on my arm and, and said to me, she goes, you know that you're the reason why we're here. And that, bless your heart, bless your that heart. That about killed me. Um, but I mean, she meant it in the right way. It was, you yeah, know, it's, it's, it's hard. You yeah. are, you already that didn't need to be said. Your your it, your it, gu- your it, guilt, it, I'm sure, was overwhelming. That that didn't. I, need, I have need to tell to you said. that I would have never survived this if it wasn't for the Behind the Badge Foundation oh, in nice. the state of Washington. Nice. This yeah. group came in. And they, they took charge of the event, and they brought in so much behind the scenes to help us get straight and to help us keep focused and to, to follow the path that we needed to follow. And we brought in counseling for all our folks. We did some critical incident debriefs. We immediately jumped on that. Our chaplaincy has been amazing. They jumped in when they needed to, and they've been everywhere, and they've been not pushing anything on anybody but being a sounding board for people. We've, we've reached out with other uh, peer support groups that have, have come in to help our guys adjust and then to do what, what we need to do to be healthy. We told our guys, you know what, we had all the other agencies, even as far as King County up in Seattle, have sent folks down here to cover calls for us while we were dealing with this. And mm. we told our guys, you come back to work when you're ready. Because we don't want 
to lose anybody else. Oh, God, no. Yeah. I can't yeah. even imagine what you, Darren, and Alan have gone through. Uh, Alan for the last eight and a half years, Darren for a horrific, surreal uh, month. Uh, I yeah. want to thank both of you for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to say in close, my my, uh, my friends? No, I I just thank you guys for the for the opportunity to talk about it. I know it's it's still pretty raw for us, and I you know it's terrible that for the Painter family that we've had to be all re-exposed again. And um, but we just appreciate what you guys are doing and and giving us the forum to to let people know how we can learn from this and move forward. Well, I have never uh, in my twenty years being around law enforcement, I have never heard anything bad about law enforcement in the in the state of Washington, all over from counties to cities. And you guys are, uh, that's a powerful story, something like I've never heard. Um, but I, there's a lot of positives from this as we all have to move forward, not necessarily move on, but a lot of strength can be drawn for this. And uh, I hope you guys do find a way to uh, not only take care of yourselves, but your families and your troops and Justin's family uh, will grow up with his, his legacy. And uh, I am truly humbled and moved that you were on our show. And I think our audience is going to be getting a lot out of this. And I will definitely look up behind the badge in the state of Washington. We have a great support group here, the 100 Club of Arizona. And I know that uh, what they do. So I'm going to look up behind the badge and, uh, and uh, try to give them a little shout out as, as well. So thank you. And uh, Darren, if I could have your permission to uh, use your uh, some of your words at the eulogy, and uh, Jason is going to forego his uh, inspirational closing message, and we're going to use your words. Is that okay, sir? That is more than okay absolutely. with me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that wraps it up for this uh, most solemn yet so riveting uh, Memorial Day Badge Boys special. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. As Darren mentioned, I'm going to forego my normal inspirational clothes and uh, I think it's more powerful and important that you listen to the eulogy for Justin DeRozier but I will say this uh, after listening to Alan with what he went through with the compassion sadness the vulnerability and dedication to duty that we heard from the undersheriff I will say this it is important that we share our experiences with other people your story will heal you. Your story will heal somebody else. When you tell your story, you free yourself and you give other people permission to acknowledge their own story. And Justin, I know you know this. I know you're looking down on your family and your squad, but in the words of the undersheriff, they got that motherfucker. And here's the eulogy. Thank you all. God bless. We all learned a lot from Justin. He had a passion for learning and loved sharing his knowledge. I think we all learn the most from him as a person and as a friend. Looking back on his life, Justin has taught us that it's okay to be boisterous. It's okay to give people shit as long as you're willing to take it in return. It's okay to be a little husky, but not a husky. And that it's okay to be fallible. He also taught us that respect is something to be earned. And because of him, 
We know it's okay to hug and cry in public while in uniform. And most importantly, he taught us about humanity. He brought us together as a community, and he continues to do so. Justin loved our community, and he loved the Whitman County community. And drawing us together is something that Justin would have loved. Together, I think we're all better for having known Justin. We really need more Justin DeRosiers. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys. Heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.